Hey guys, just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to Sidebar Forever. If you like the show, please subscribe to us at sidebarforever.com as well as share episodes of the podcast on your social media. That way, new listeners can find us as well. Today's podcast is a playback review of the 2013 climate fiction film Snowpiercer. Directed by Bong Joon-ho, Snowpiercer is a post-apocalyptic tale about a second ice age brought on by a freak climate catastrophe. The last remaining humans and animals climb aboard a super train that must stay in perpetual motion. If the train stops, everyone freezes to death and humanity will be lost forever. And while Snowpiercer certainly checks every box in the sci-fi movie column, it actually subverts genre by how it also plays with themes of class, privilege, inequality, and survival. The film itself is an adaptation of a French graphic novel published in 1982, and it's also noted for being one of the most expensive Korean productions to date, due in part, I'm sure, to its star-studded cast, which includes Chris Evans, Tilda Swinton, Octavia Spencer, Song Kang-ho, John Hurt, and Ed Harris. And if the director's name sounds familiar, that's because Bong Joon-ho is the filmmaker behind 2019's Parasite, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture and Best Director. Yes, it's just Swain and I fighting like bloody hell to get from the tail to the front as we play back Bong Joon-ho's 2013 film, Snowpiercer. This chaos. A thousand people in an iron box. 18 years I've hated the train. 18 years I've waited for this moment. This is your world. The train saved humanity. The engine lasts forever. The population must always be kept in balance. I said sit down. Passengers, eternal order flows from the sacred engine. We must occupy our preordained position. I belong to the front. You belong to the tail. No your those bastards in the front think they own us. We'll be different when we get there. What do you say? We take the engine and we control the world. When is the time? Soon. Most people know the name Bong Joon-ho from his 2019 box office smash Parasite, but... Today, we wanted to talk about one of his earlier films, Snowpiercer, which was released in 2013. Mm -hmm. It's his first English-speaking film, and a lot of people feel like Snowpiercer set Bong up for the success that he ultimately had later on with, uh, with Parasite, which won a bunch of awards and also made a ton of money. Bong directed this film, and he co-wrote it with another writer named Kelly Masterson. And at the time, it was one of the most expensive Korean productions to date. I think it was $40 million and probably largely due to its you know, international cast. Yeah. Now, the story of the film takes place in 2014, and the threat of global warming is imminent. So in a last-ditch effort to stop it, the science community of the world decides to launch this chemical into the atmosphere called CW7 in an effort to cool the Earth. Well, it actually works out a little too well. Uh, it triggers a second ice age, and pretty soon the science community realizes that life on Earth will be extinct because, because the temperatures are going to plummet. So, enter this guy named Wilford, who is a wealthy industrialist, and he creates a train called Snowpiercer. It's a super train. And he also builds a track that essentially circles the globe. And so the point is, is let's load the last remaining humans and animals on this train get the train in motion, and the train has to stay in perpetual motion. Once it takes off, it has to keep going. If it stops, the temperatures are going to be too frigid, and the train will freeze, and everyone on board will freeze to death, and that'll be it for humanity. It'll be a wrap. Mm -hmm. Right at DEFCON 5, when everyone is boarding the train, a thousand people fight and really kill their way onto the tail of the train and are essentially stowaways. So you have 
In the front of the train, in the first and second class sections, you have all of the rich, elite, and connected who paid to be on this train. And then on the tail, you have these people who are essentially stowaways. And so it creates a haves and a haves not situation for the people who are riding on the train. The tail end of the train becomes known as, quote, the tail. And they are treated like animals, like like vermin. I think uh, one of the characters even refers to them as vermin. Uh, they live in concentration-like camp uh, conditions. And so the movie takes place 18 years after the train has taken off. And through those 18 years, they've had several revolts where the people in the tail have fought to try to take over the train unsuccessfully. And so the story of Snowpiercer is the latest revolt, which is headed by a character named Curtis Everett, played by Chris Evans. And it's essentially his trek from the tail of the train all the way up to the head of the train to meet Mr. Wilford. Mm-hmm. So anyway... What did you think about the movie, man? What, what were your what were your initial thoughts? You know, you had been talking about, you know, Snowpiercer for the last couple of years, you know, actually. And as I am wont to do, I'm like, all right, I get to it, man. You know what I'm saying? In my, in my old time, just give my brother a second. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but once I finally did, you know, I thought the concept was really, really good, man. You know, and... There's a part of me that really responds to like those post-apocalyptic type scenarios mm-hmm. because, and I think a lot of people do because it's like, man, well, if you were in that situation, kind of, what would you do? So it's interesting to see what someone else does, even if it's fictional, of course. Um, as far as the movie itself, I, I think I described it to you. <laughs> I saw so many pieces of other things that I had seen that may or may not have been influences. I was like, it's like 1984 meets Dark City meets Brazil meets Wizard of Oz. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because it's like, man, it has elements of all of that from the, uh, from the uh, production design, you know, which was great. I, you know, when they would move, like when they, when they would progress from car to car, it was like, oh, man, what's the next car going to be like? Wow, this is man, this is very well done. Holy smoke. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And then them starting from the dregs, literally, from the back of the train and working their way to the front, you know, that's obviously an allegory for classism, you know, just, you know, out and out, you know, classism. And that always does it for me. You know, just like you want to see the underdog come up. You know what I'm saying? Even if it's through <laughs> blood and, you know, just crazy violence, whatever. Yep. What happens when the underdog comes up and finally achieves their goal? You know what I'm saying? So it's stuff like that that really makes this um, movie very good to me. And I was also very impressed by uh, the performances, too, in particular, Chris Evans. You know, because this is just him like maybe a year or two after the Avengers, which to me, I know this is crazy as it sounds. But him playing uh, Steve Rogers and Captain America, to me, that's Chris Evans's not Evans but that's his breakout role for me. You know, that's the one where it's like, all right, okay, then this guy's legit now. He's legit. And Snowpiercer kind of... um, embellish that legitimacy you know of him for me you know i was like he actually did very good especially like towards the third act Mm -hmm. you know it was like all right he has he had a couple of moments there where it was like yeah okay he's really showing a bit of range here all right i I can get with this you know what i'm saying yeah man okay so so overall you know just to just to be short um i thought it was i thought it was pretty good the third act though you know, it's a, it's a bit clunky. I, I will admit that. You know what I'm saying? But everything else before then and even parts within the third act are still pretty good, though. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Uh, what you said about the uh, some of the the themes in the movie. I mean, clearly, this is a, this is a genre film. I mean, climate fiction, science fiction, what have you. But at the same time, you know, the way it plays with those themes of class, privilege, uh inequality and then also survival you know what one would ultimately do to survive yeah you know and there are things that come out in the film in terms of what you know what these people had to do in order to to live was you know it's it's 
it's incredible. It's incredible. And it's like heart wrenching. Like when you hear, you know, like what you're talking about, that third act section where uh, Chris Evans has a, he has this kind of a, uh, it starts as a dialogue and then it turns into a monologue with, uh, with, ne- with Nam Goong's character. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, man, it's, uh, and, and funny you should say that too, because this movie was adapted from a, uh, a French graphic novel called, uh, La Transpersonage. Okay. Came out in 1982. And I think Bong Joon-ho, you know, he stumbled upon it, really fell in love with it. And then, you know, got the rights and eventually started developing it, you know, into a, uh, into a feature film. But once people heard that this was going to be a feature film, uh, Chris Evans actually sought him out, sought Bong out, you know, to try to, you know, to try to get the role. And Bong Joon-ho said initially he was like, eh, he thought Chris Evans, you know, he was, he was too, you know, too good looking and, and, and too, you know, cock diesel and too, you know, too yeah, muscle <laughs> you know, to play somebody who's essentially living almost like a concentration camp person. Right. You know, under really grueling conditions. But he said he met with uh, with, with with Chris and he said he, he, he found him, you know, to be like really sensitive and and, and kind of shy and uh, but, you know, but thoughtful. And he was not the person he thought he was. So he cast him in the role and then decided that they were going to put, you know, put him in baggy clothes and try to shoot him from angles where it didn't show off his, you know, his his chiseled chest and his abs and. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, I didn't even consider that until you mentioned that it was like, yeah, because he is coming off of the Avengers. So he has to stay in shape for that because he's still doing those movies. OK, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And, and it certainly would, you know, in a, in a perfect world. You know, it would have been great for him to, you know, lose, you know, 15 or 20 pounds, you know, like Adrian Brody did in the, uh, I think in The Pianist. Yeah. You know, you know, you know, and, and really kind of, you know, look look a little frailer than he actually is. But but if he had lost that weight, I, I think his character wouldn't have appeared as as um, as strong or maybe forthright, you know, going into like those later scenes where he ha- has to do battle. You know, I don't think it would have been believable if he had weighed less or looked a bit more slight. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. Because he really was. There were some serious like combat scenes later on in the movie. And we'll talk about uh, a couple of those. Matter of fact, we can we can actually uh, talk a little bit about that. There were some key scenes in the movie uh, that I thought were standouts. And one was and this is the one that stayed with me the most when I first watched it. Was the uh, was when they took Andrew's arm at the beginning? Oh yeah, and I was just like, oh, oh shit, are you are you kidding me? Um, uh, and for anyone you know, for those who hadn't seen the film, um, in the movie, Andrew they take Andrew's son, and Andrew is Andrew is a you know it's kind of a wild character, and he he yeah. he throws something at one of the uh, one of the head people. And injures them, so they decide they're going to take his arm. So what they do is, 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 is he they they he's topless. They take his shirt off, they put his arm outside the window of the train, and let it freeze. Right. And you got to consider the fact that the train is moving at you know probably over a hundred miles an hour, and outside it's it's like a hundred and sixty to two hundred degrees below zero. Right. So his arm goes out, and he ah, and then eventually he just stops screaming because he's gone into shock. And then they bring him in and his arm is frozen solid like an ice cube. And they take a small, small hammer and they tap it to make sure it's frozen solid. And then they take a mallet and just smash it to pieces. <laughs> and it's like, and it almost reminded me of uh, that scene in Roots with Kunta Kinte uh-huh. when, oh, they cut yeah. his, when they cut his foot off. And John Amos says, Kunta Kinte said, how can a man do this to another man? And I was just like, ah. Oh word oh man yeah you're right it was it was so barbaric but i thought when they took andrew's arm i thought that was particularly sadistic and cruel um mason's speech tilda swinton's uh speech talking about class and your position and all this kind of stuff and you know i am the hat and you are the shoe i go on the head you go on the foot and the way they the camera moves you know on her hands and watching her gestures I thought that was really interesting. And I thought Tilda Swinton's performance, while it was over the top, it was perfect. Note perfect, yeah. Because she was so odd and so bizarrely funny. And then when she takes her teeth out later, I was like, oh, my God. But go ahead. 
Would you wear a shoe on your head? Of course you wouldn't wear a shoe on your head. A shoe doesn't belong on your head. A shoe belongs on your foot. A hat belongs on your head. I am a hat. You are a shoe. I belong on the head. You belong on the foot. Yes, so it is. In the beginning, order was prescribed by your ticket. First class, economy, and freeloaders like you. Eternal order is prescribed by the sacred engine. All things flow from the sacred engine. All things in their place. All passengers in their section. All water flowing, all heat rising pays homage to the sacred engine. In its own particular, preordained position. So it is. <laughs> now, I was going to say, riding with that, I was going to mention that Mason... Um, Tilda Swinton's character, she really crystallized to me. I remember saying to you afterwards, you know, there is like a strain of like that dark British gallows humor, almost that dark Monty Python humor almost, Yeah, you know, and she really brought that in. And, you know, man, she, she was, she was great. She was great. I was like, every time she was on screen and when she would show up, it was like, wow, just a, a, a resting. You know, I was like, man. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, um, that part, uh, the part of Mason was actually written for a man. Hmm. And they cast Tilda Swinton. She she and Chris Evans both at the time were talking about pulling back from acting and kind of focusing on like other things. I think he wants to direct. And I think she was just wanting to take a break because she's she's been pretty busy. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, when she heard that this was in production, she became interested and they cast her in the part, even though it was written for a guy. But if you pay attention in the movie, there are a couple of times where Wilford's soldiers on the train refer to her as sir. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They call her sir, which I, th I thought was interesting that they kept, you know, kept that. Uh, they kept it as a male reference in, in terms of her, uh, you know, her authority, you know, within the uh, the system on the train. But. Now, 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 sometimes, though, in the military, though, you know, like they'll like soldiers, even if they have a female commanding officer, they'll still say, sir, anyway. They do. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Like they don't necessarily just say, ma'am, ma'am. You know what I'm saying? They're like, yes, sir. You know, because I, I don't know, but I've, I've seen it on documentaries, you know, in the instances where there is a female commanding officer, they'll still say, sir, instead of ma'am you know, uh, most of the time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, another scene that I thought really stood out to me because again, you know, you're watching the movie and you're kind of thrust into this and the, you know, they kind of put you in the heat of it right away is when, uh, you, you know that they're planning a revolt. Uh, Chris Evans plays a character called Curtis, uh, Curtis Everett and John Hurt, who's kind of like his father mentor figure, uh, and has kind of been a leader in the past, but, you know, John Hurt is an elderly person. He's lost a foot, he's uh, lost a leg, he's lost an arm. And they're planning a revolt. And there have been other revolts in the past, and in these past revolts, you know, they've just been slaughtered. Right. You know, uh, it's just never gone the way of the tail, the people who exist on the tail, versus the people who exist in the front of, in the front of the train. And so they're planning another one, and Chris Evans says... I don't think they have any bullets. Mm -hmm. And he's like, what? And he's like, yeah, he said, I think they ran out of bullets on all the previous revolts and they're just using the guns as, you know, as, a, as, as a symbol to intimidate them. So at one point, you know, this, during the first, that first revolt, he gets up and he walks up to the guard and he puts, grabs the barrel of the guard's gun and puts it up to his head. And then he grabs the, the trigger and clicks it. <laughs> And then all of a sudden they scream, they don't have any bullets. Ah! And then it is on. Everybody, they rush the guards, they whoop ass, they wreck shop, and they created that that battering ram, which they go, for, you know, oh, through each great, door. Oh, that was great, Yes, yes. And it was like, oh, man, and everybody's like doing this battering ram, and they boom, go from door to door to door, just just kicking people's asses. And uh, I thought that was that was an awesome scene. But the one that that really got me, and this is the one that you kind of uh, uh, you were kind of uh, speaking to earlier, was the one that I call the uh, uh, the tunnel standoff, aka the uh, the S and M thug section. 
Oh man, hey, that that thing right there. I, you know, I did catch myself. I did gasp when that door opened. Yeah. And you just see like the dudes like just in the executioner's hood. Yes. Just, oh shit. Yeah, and, and black black leather like rain jackets with hatchets and saws. And they're like smiling and laughing and like you can see their teeth, but you oddly can't see their faces. <laughs> so they look kind of monstrous at the same time. Yeah. And even and before they open that door, remember uh, uh, Nem Goon's, his daughter, Yona, she said, because she's clairvoyant. Don't, and she said, don't open that door. Don't open. And as soon as they open the door, those dudes are sitting there just like licking yeah. their shots, like ready for it. What's up, dog? Yeah. What's up, dog? Yeah. <laughs> it was like the it was like the Jets and the other gang and uh, uh them sharks, yo. In yeah. West Side Story, yo. <laughs> and, and, and then that whole that whole battle, like that next, however long those couple of scenes after that, you know, um, endured, man. So inventive, so inventive. I was like, damn. Yeah. Damn. It's crazy. I was the, the 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 scene where they go through the tunnel and uh and Wilfred Stuggs put on the night vision, so it's completely dark in there, and the only light is from like uh, uh I don't even know where the light source is from, but I think it was it was nap they shot it with natural light, but they were just skewering those guys. Yes. But when they look when they first opened the door and I saw them all dressed in leather, I was like, okay. And they were all like laughing. They had like kind of weird smiles and stuff on their face. I was like, okay, y'all gonna fight or fuck? I mean, what is <laughs> what are you what are you dressed for? <laughs> man, but, uh, dog. Oh man. But and then when they asked for the little boy who had the matches yeah. that he had gotten from Nam, and like, we need we need the light, we need the we need the fire. And he's running like like the Olympic I kind of welled up just a little bit because hope. There's hope right there. This little boy right here got hope. Yeah, yo. And then when then when they started lighting all the torches to fight back against the night vision, I was like, oh shit, yeah. Yeah. And when at the, at the end of the scene when they got when they got Mason, and Curtis had to basically sacrifice Edgar. Oh yeah. And it was like, oh, he he just turned his back and just ran, and they got her. And you know, Mason got. I mean, uh, Edgar got. Uh, got stabbed in the back but that was a good scene the classroom scene with the teacher and the kids mm -hmm. uh these kind of you know like brainwashed automatons the, the the next generation you know wilford wilford is the is the the divine and the merciful you know if you go outside you will die isn't that right children yes you will die if you go outside <laughs> you will die as hard as it is to believe People in the old world made fun of Mr. Wilford. They criticized him for over-engineering and over-equipping this wonderful train. But Mr. Wilford knew something they did not. And what was that? Old world people were frigging morons who got turned into popsicles. Well, sort of. Mr. Wilford knew that CW7 would freeze the world. So what did the prophetic Mr. Wilford invent to protect the Chosen from that calamity? They kind of remind me of like Pink Floyd's The Wall, yes, yo. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's it's it looked like a British like schoolmaster type of scene, that type of situation, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I thought so too, man. I I I, I that whole scene, and I thought they, that was another scene where I thought they spent an inordinate amount of time standing around talking. But it was the setup that yeah. plot twist that came. Right, right, right. But I was just like, the first time I was like, what? Why are we still here? You know, why are we still in this classroom? You know? Yeah. Um, and then, uh, of course, when he meets, finally gets, he finally breaches the engine door and meets Wilford. And they start having the conversation and Wilford starts talking to him. And then you get a sense of who Wilford really is. And Wilford is played by Ed Harris. And, and, Harris's performance as Wilfred in the movie is oddly similar to his performance as Kristoff in the uh, in the Truman Show. Mm, mm, yeah. You know, he's kind of like this uh, creatively brilliant guy, but he's obsessed and kind of disconnected from his own humanity. He doesn't realize 
you know, that people aren't puppets and pawns and, and aren't, you know, you know, uh, pieces on a chessboard or on a checkerboard to move around. But, you know, you do get a sense, you know, the, the, the conversation that they're having and some of the things that he says to him, like he says, he says, you know, we're all in prison. Everybody on this train, doesn't matter whether you live on the front or the back, we're all in prison. We're all in this metal tube and can't get out. Mm-hmm. And we're stuck here. And to the point where you realize what a commodity, what commodities are on this train, he takes him into the uh, into the into the room where the uh, where the eternal engine is. That's what they call it, the eternal engine, capital E, capital E. And he says, Curtis, when was the last time you were alone? Oh, and man, he just yeah. walks out of the room and leaves him by himself. And you get a sense, okay, Chris Evans's character, Curtis, this is the first time he's been able to be in a room and think by himself, even if it's just for a minute. Yes, yes. For the last 17 years. This, ba- this basically, the, the, the climate uh, catastrophe takes place in 2014. This takes place in 2031. And when Chris Evans' character boarded the train, he was 17, and now he's in his mid-30s. So he spent half of his adult life on this train. And he and he 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 reflects on that often. Like they keep asking him, "Do you remember this?" And do you remember that? He says, "No, I try not to remember." Yeah, I try not to remember because it's going to be torturing me too much. I just I try not to remember, you know, what steak tastes like and what, you know, all those other things taste like. But and then you know that ending scene, uh, you know, where the train crashes, and Yona and Timmy come outside, and it's almost like. You know, like settlers in the in the in the new world, or yeah, uh, you know that kind of a thing. Where it's like, okay, well, you know, wow. But um, jumping ahead to that, man, what did you think of the ending and how they spun it with uh, Nam Gung and him talking about you know what he was seeing and the plane and all of that and the ice melting and then you know different kind of snow and all of that stuff. How did how did that work for you as a, as a as a cap as a cap on the uh, the end of it? Um, when, when, he, when he said it, when they went across the bridge, and when, when he was talking about what the location of the plane, mm-hmm. I did recall when they crossed that bridge that there was a shot down there. So it was like, okay, it's, it, it, it was a Chekhov's gun. They did show it, you know, down there. So it wasn't a cheat. But to come to the end, and him talking about, oh, well, it's different types of snow. And that means that because every every year that we've passed it, the snow has decreased, decreased, decreased. It's melting. You know, it's like, okay, so, all right. And then they get to the ending and they're outside and they see <laughs> and they see a polar bear. The polar bear was like, what y'all want? You're right. Y'all? <laughs> you do know I'm hungry, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's, that's what I thought. I was like, Oh shoot! What y'all right. doing? Right. What y'all want? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's supposed to be this revelatory thing. It's like, but I thought all life was extinct. I guess not. Da-da-da-da. Right, right, <laughs> right. And, and really and truly, like I, I have to kind of question the uh, the chronology because just a few days before they stuck Andrew's arm outside, it was 160 degrees below zero and it froze off. So now two days later. We're convinced, you know, and granted, they're in a different part, you know, like the train is moving so fast that they're actually in a different part of, quote, maybe not the world, but a different part of whatever country they were in. Uh But but even still, I was just like, okay, I thought you couldn't survive. outside. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, you just showed us how harsh the conditions are, you know, when uh, when they took Andrew's arm. So but I thought it was a cool idea that as bad as we could fuck it up. Mm hmm. You know, that the earth and that the world is going to find a way to fix itself. It's going to right itself, you know, no matter what. It's kind of like, you know, like the cockroaches, you know, when we're dead and gone in, in a nuclear holocaust, the cockroaches be like, man, I'm still out here trying to find these scraps. <laughs> I'm still out here trying to find these bits of whatever I can so I can do my thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and that's like that line from uh, Jurassic Park that um, David Attenborough had. He said, life will always find a way. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Um, so, yeah, I thought that that was, it was a cool idea. Maybe the execution of it could have been, could have been fleshed out a little bit more. I wonder if that's how the, uh, the graphic novel ends. You know, if it actually ends exactly the same way or if they took, you know, creative license 
and kind of did their uh, did their own thing. Mm-hmm. But um, as far as the rest of the cast goes, man, um, we talked a little bit about Swinton and Chris Evans. What did you think about Octavia Spencer as Tanya uh, and Song Kang Ho as uh, Nam Goon? And I forget the actor actors who played his uh, his daughter Yona. And then, you know, John Hurt also as uh, as Gilliam, because you were talking about his name, Gilliam, maybe even possibly be, maybe being a reference to Terry Gilliam. I don't know. Right. Exactly. You know, Terry Gilliam, obviously the director of Brazil, um, Time Bandits, you know, um, several um, not, not I wouldn't say cult movies, but movies to have very much a devoted following. And they are very much in it, this dystopic realm. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, but yeah, first off, I mean, John Hurt, that that just adds instant, instant legitimacy to the cast. I mean, you got John Hurt, yo. Yeah. You know, yeah. just man, he, he was good in, in the in the bit that he had. It's like, yeah, yeah, he, he's working it. You know what I'm saying? And he just gives you that that um that gravitas for real. Um, as far as Octavia Butler. Octavia Butler, <laughs> another sister, <laughs> deserving the recognition, but Octavia Spencer. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> as far as Octavia Spencer, um, I, I thought that she was very good, too. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. But the part, yes, you know exactly where I'm going. I was like, dang, it was kind of unfortunate, dang. What was what was the circumstance to where she was up there yelling, chicken, chicken, chicken? <laughs> I was like, why she got to be the one to say it? You couldn't let Edgar say that? <laughs> Damn, yo. We want some chitlins. 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 <laughs> you might as well. I want some hot chitlins. <laughs> neck bone, neck bone. <laughs> Side that aside, <laughs> she also gave you like that that dramatic gravitas that was needed too. You know, like early on in the movie, I like how they established all of that early on, very briskly. You know, and I think that may be what you were referring to as well because the movie starts off very briskly. I mean, it establishes everything very, very succinctly and very. We're building the blocks here. Boom, 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 boom. This is the setup. You know, and it moves along. And when they take her son, Timmy, you know, and she gives you that, no, don't take my boy. No, no, that type of thing. It's like, okay, now she got a reason to come along too. And because you also need that that um, feminine presence, so to speak, too. Like, my motivation is to get my son back. They took my son. You know what I'm saying? So I'm coming along with y'all, mm-hmm. you know? So it's almost like you had representation, you know, again, that that comparison I made to the Wizard of Oz, you know? And I think it was four of them. Edgar, Tanya, uh, Curtis, and was there one other person? Wasn't it? Oh, well, well once Nam joins and his daughter, it's kind of like the, the four, and their little dog too, you right. know. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're off to see Wilford. They're off to see the wizard, you know. And they have to go through all these crazy zones to get there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh, and, and deepening that Oz comparison, think about it. Wilford, the wizard, you know, sings out these other goons, almost like, you know, the flying monkeys yes. and all these other yes. henchmen yeah. to stop them from approaching yeah. the city of Oz, to approach what's behind those doors, you know? So I wonder if that also was an obvious comparison, you know, to be made there, that, yeah, this is almost like the Wizard of Oz as well, for sure. Yeah, I didn't even consider that when I was watching the movie. Uh, I was thinking about some of the other things that you mentioned, like, you know, other kind of dystopian and, and also post-apocalyptic movies um, like, you know, 1984 and um, and Brazil and uh, and, and other and Dark City. Yeah. Yeah. Dark City. But I hadn't even considered the Wizard of Oz thing. And now it all kind of does make sense that that kind of was maybe w- might have been uh, a, a blueprint underneath. Again, maybe even going back to the graphic novel in 1982. Uh, is to create like a, a modern version of that on this uh, on this particular train, yeah. This or you know this super train, I guess you you, should, you really should call it. But um, but let, let's. I wanted to ask, man, since we talked about some of the themes 
earlier, uh, you were talking about classism and, you know, and I mentioned like survival and, uh, and, and privilege and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Like some of the stuff that, that really hit me was, especially watching it a second time. And it's, it mirrors our own society where, you know, you're living in the comfort of a home with heat and air and you have food and, you know, and you can take a nice vacation with your family and, you know, you have a Wi-Fi and, you know, all of these creature comforts and all of these accoutrements that we all kind of get lulled into a sense of, of complacency by. And yet a stone's throw away or a thousand cars away, there are people living in depravity. But as long as we have these comforts, we don't really think about them. We don't really consider what's happening over there especially as long as, as, as things are flowing over here for us. Right. And I thought about, like, for instance, the idea of the people in Curtis's group who fight their way onto the train right before the train takes off and, 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 and the Ice Age becomes a real, you know, a real thing to, to contend with. They fight their way on the train. The, ta- the people known as the tail are essentially immigrants, Mm, stowaways yeah yeah you know they're they're not supposed to be there they've come after the fact the people who are there are suspicious of them don't like them barely tolerate them use them for their own gain you know when they can yeah and and are angry with them because they're consuming resources Mm-hmm. so they're almost treated like immigrants like immigrants from you know from latin countries and spanish-speaking countries they're treated like immigrants, you know, really any, any immigrant, you know, in, in, in the history of America. I thought that was interesting. And then like the top 1%, you know, which is what the front of the train is, you know, they will always let the bot people on the bottom starve if they have to kill themselves. Uh, there's cannibalism on this train. So they'll let them eat themselves in order to remain in power and to keep the quote balance. And, uh, and they'll convince themselves in some weird twisted logic that the poor deserve it because they're not supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. Um, another thing that was just funny to me was the fact that and they kept coming back to it was that uh, uh, Nam and Yona. Yeah, they was basically some geek monsters, yo. <laughs> they were like, you got that chrono? You got that chrono? What's up? What's up that chrono? Chrono. Hey. I need that chrono. Yeah, pretty much. I need that chrono, Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan. I smoke chrono, Joe Rogan. <laughs> Y'all can't aim on them chronos. Yeah. To, to the point where, like, Yona would be, she would be lucid and and having conversations, and then she'd be, like, laid out sleep while there's chaos going on. She's just laid out sleep and, oh, just kind of, like, uninvolved. I'm like, damn. Yeah, yeah, and you, know. Kind of, you know, the whole movie, they were like, you know, they're, you know, they're addicts, you know, when they pulled them out of the drawers. Uh, they were addicts, and um, uh, and the fact that I guess it was kind of cool that they figured out that Nam boarded the train as a security expert. So once they figured out what drawer he was in, and then they kind of you know woke him up and kind of reanimated him, he would be a resource to him. But you know, of course, he didn't want to at first, and then of course it complicates things. The fact that they think he's just he and his daughter are just drug addicts. Yeah, yeah, but uh, and I think the, the other thing is, is like. Again, how it mirrors our society. So the tail kind of represents the poor, you know, the people who are on the bottom rung. And they can only be useful to the greater of society by either entertaining them, you know, like through sports or through music or, or you know, through, through the arts. You can entertain me or you can be used for cheap labor or in this case, child labor. Yes. You know. And, you know, you and I are both, you know, again, just talking about how we're a part of the problem. You know, we're both talking on, you know, iPhones and technology that was probably made in the country with child labor and, you know, where it's cheap. And, you know, but as long as I got my iPhone 8 plus, I'm a, I got an old iPhone, you know. Me too. I'm right there with you. <laughs> you know, people are happy. I'm happy. But, you know, we kind of turn a blind eye to that in certain societies where, you know, we're, we're trade and. And where, you know, we take advantage of, you know, inexpensive labor and cheap labor, uh, you know, to the detriment of those people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, another thing to consider as well is that, you know, um, I think your comparison to them being immigrants is spot on. And the reason I say that is, is you got to also consider, you know, 
their stowaways almost like, you know, immigrants that were coming over from, you know, Europe to America in like the late 1800s, early 1900s. Right. You know, and they would be put into the steerage of the ship. You know what I'm saying? Up above, obviously, would be like, you know, the rich and the hoity-toity, you know, living under chandeliers, eating the finest food, while third-class steerage down below, they were just trying to get across. That's all. You know, hopefully there's another opportunity here in America, you know, and it also plays upon kind of that British tradition as well to where the British, man, if you read like Victorian history, damn, they they was harsh on some kids. Yeah. Fuck a child labor like just crazy. So when they came to take the children away, you know, in the movie, you know, I kind of thought about that, too. It's like, yeah, this is almost like, you know, Victorian England. Take the children. We can use them, you know, screw the parents, yeah. you know, take the children. And it's like, wow, that's messed up, man. Yeah, yeah. And even even here in the States prior to the Industrial Revolution, you know, you would hear stories about people, you know, working on farms and ranches and whatnot, you know, and having like 10 and 12 and 14 kids. That wasn't just because they liked to the screw. Right. Practical. You had to have a lot of kids because some of them were going to either die in childbirth or they just die later. That was almost a guarantee. Yes. Mm-hmm. Second of all, if you got a farm, you need some kids to help you work that farm, dog. <laughs> yes. <laughs> need them hands, yo. Yeah. You know, in modern day, you know, you need somebody to go, go get me a, gl- a bottle of water. Go get me the remote. Hand me the remote. <laughs> well, it's right there, daddy. Hand me the remote. Go get the remote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I say? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I asked for no lip. Right. I asked you to get the remote. <laughs> but um but uh, another form of usage was we find out later in the film that Gilliam who was the mentor to Chris Evans character you know the old man who's you know who's basically at the end of his life has had a um like a clandestine deal or a dark alliance with Wilfred all along mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that you know they had colluded to create these revolts because in these revolts, there's a serious loss of life. And the loss of life means more resources for the people who are there, more air to breathe, more water to drink, uh, less, you know, less anything being consumed. And it creates a balance in the ecosystem of the train. Wilfred says that. He says, you know, we don't have time for true natural selection. We would all be hideously overcrowded and starve waiting for that. The next best solution is to have individual units kill off other individual units. From time to time, we've had to stir the pot, so to speak. The Revolt of the Seven, the McGregor Riots, the Great Curtis Revolution, a blockbuster production with a devilishly unpredictable plot. Who could have predicted your counterattack with the torch in the Yekaterina Tunnel? Pure genius. That wasn't what Gilliam and I had in our plan. What? No, don't tell me you didn't know. Gilliam and I, our plan. Gilliam. Gilliam. The front and the tail are supposed to work together. He was uh, more than a partner, really. He was my friend. Bullshit. I don't believe you. Our original agreement was for the insurgency to end at the Ekaterina Tunnel. And all the survivors would go back to the tail section to enjoy much more space. You're a fucking liar. Gilliam would never do that. It all worked out in the end. Your counterattack actually made the insurgency 10 times more exciting. Unfortunately, the front suffered more losses than anticipated and Gilliam had to pay the price. Ironic, isn't it? We don't have natural selection on this train because we're in a tube. So we have to create our own artificial natural selection. And he did that by create by in, by encouraging these revolts so that there'd be a loss of life on his side and a loss of life on the side of the tail. Yeah. But then there would be a, a balance or a, a harmony, an, an ecosystem harmony struck on the train. And so, again, it's kind of like, you know, Gil, he gives Gilliam a little bit of power, so to speak, a little bit of access 
you know, in the same way that a boss would give a middle manager a title, you know, and a little bit of extra money to kind of keep the frontline workers, you know, in line and doing their thing. But that person really doesn't have any real power, doesn't have any real, you know, any yay or nay that's going to that's going to mean anything. But um, the other thing I thought was interesting, too, was and obviously, you know, this this whole story, you know, is is plucked from all these different places, you know, maybe Brazil, maybe Dark City, maybe something else, maybe the Wizard of Oz. But obviously the train is 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 a metaphor for or the whole thing is like an analogy or uh is uh analogous to uh Noah's Ark. Oh, you know, of course. Yeah. You know, everybody oh, getting yeah. on and the animals and so forth. And I love the fact that the inhabitants of this of the train, including the staff and the soldiers and the people who are there to keep order, like they refer to the great engine or the eternal engine as if it is like the sanctum sanctorum, like it is, you know, the celestial divine place. You know, Wilfred is a god to them. Uh, they even refer to, you know, they say that the, the, the engine is, is sacred. Wilfred is divine and merciful. Mm-hmm. You know, even in this destitute situation, whether you're in the first class or whether you're in the tail, there's still this idolization of, you know, there, we've got to have somebody to worship. We've got to have something to focus our spiritual eyes on. Otherwise, we don't know what to do with ourselves. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I yeah, I would also say just, you know, not in a spiritual sense as well, but also it again, it, it mirrors our society. Everyone is always looking up for a better life. You know what I'm saying? If I just make this much more income, if I just get this, you know, my family and I can have this or I can finally get this house. I can do this. You're always looking up, trying to climb up that ladder. Right. Right, right. And yeah, exactly. Rung by rung, you know, you want to advance, you know, and because it, it's a pyramid, you know, the broad, the, the base of the pyramid is very broad. You know, that's the tail of the train. And the uh, higher you go, the narrower, the, na- the more narrow that pyramid becomes, obviously. You know what I'm saying? And it's just like everyone's always looking up, you know, either for, you know, spiritual guidance or just, man, I we got to do better. How do I advance myself? You know what I mean? And it's just, yeah, I mean, it's a perfect analogy. You know, I was also thinking also, you know, with Gilliam being at the tail and him and uh, Wilford talking, it's almost like that there's a there's a snake in mythology called, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, um, Urboros or Urboros or something like that. I, mm-hmm. You can look it up, but it's basically a snake that eats its tail. You know what I'm saying? And if, and even though the train is, you could call it a snake in some way, but because the two ends, the two extremes are communicating, it's almost like eating itself constantly to invent these revolts so that it can right itself. And then some years later, it's going to have to happen again in order to right this thing again. So even though the train is straight, it's circular logic in a sense you know what i'm saying yeah i didn't even think about that but yeah you're right the fact that the head and the tail are speaking to one another and that they're connected uh is kind of like that snake eating its own tail uh uh that 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 you know that you hear uh mentioned uh as, as it's a cliche but obviously i didn't realize it was a mythological creature that uh that actually does it if i'm not mistaken yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah um the last thing i thought was really interesting was is you know, we're left to believe that Timmy and Yona are the only survivors of this crash. Perhaps there are others. But, you know, in the sense of that final scene, the last two people left to repopulate the earth are two people of color. Right. <laughs> I was like, okay. That's kind of dope, yo. I'm sorry. It just is. <laughs> <laughs> it just is. But um, some of the cool... There were a couple of quotes I thought were really interesting in the exchanges. Uh, when Wilfred and Curtis are talking, and Wilf- Wilfred says, Curtis, everyone has their preordained position, and everyone is in their place except you. And Curtis says, that's what people in the best place say to people in the worst place. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm-hmm. gut punch, gut punch. Yeah. <laughs> and then Mason, you know, Tilda Swinton's character, 
says, you know, now as in the beginning, I belong in the front. You belong to the tail. When the foot seeks to play the place of the head, the sacred line is crossed. Know your place. Know your place. Keep your place. Be a shoe. And then when they put the shoe put the on shoe Andrew's on head, head <laughs> before they took his arm, and then later on he put the shoe on, on, uh, her. on her head, and they were laughing about it. I thought that was great. Also, too, I wanted to make mention, the character, they never said his name, but he was known as Painter. The guy who was drawing and making art. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was so cool that, you know, in this position that they find themselves in, in the tale, with no resources, no technology, no anything, they can't take pictures. So to document things, they have the artist draw them. Mm-hmm. So he drew pictures of Timmy and Andy, the two kids that they took at the beginning, and that's what Andrew, the father, and what Tanya, the mother, took as they're progressing to the train. They get to the classroom and say, have you seen these kids? Have you seen these kids? Those were drawings of their kids. They didn't have any pictures of them. The pictures don't, you know, cameras are extinct as far as they're concerned. So are memories in a, in a sense. Yeah. yeah. And and even that scene where they had captured Mason and uh, and they says, everybody get in. The, and you think they're taking a the pictures. Everybody get in. Curtis, you get in too. You get in. And they're all standing there. And then the painter, the artist has to draw everybody real quick. I was like, damn, this dude is like, if you get him at a convention, yo, he go- <laughs> <laughs> He's walking away with all the money, yo. <laughs> I was like, dang. He was pretty good, too. I was well, like, dang. Well, that's what I was going to say. Um, one of the trivia bits I, I picked up was uh, Bong Joon-ho contacted the artist from uh, La Transpersonage, uh, a French illustrator named uh, Jean-Marc Rocher, I think is his name. And he pro- he did all the artwork for the painter. What? And... And some of the artwork that's in the classroom in that classroom scene is hanging on the walls. That's his artwork. Oh, snaps. Yeah. So he was able to bring him in and actually gave him a job, you know, uh, to be a part of the uh, of the production. And that work was good. I looked up that guy's uh, his stuff. Uh-huh. It's very cartoonist, you know, very kind of toth, kind of uh, uh, golden age cartoonist like, like it's what you would call some good ass comics. That's what it looked like. Some good ass <laughs> comics, yo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I think they actually did an English translation of it uh, a few years before the movie, a couple years before the movie came out. So, uh, so th- there is an English tra- uh, English version uh, of it um, available. But uh, and then the other thing was uh, when Mason says, uh, "My friend, you suffer from the misplaced optimism of the doom." Yes. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But uh, some other trivia that I uncovered and we can we can get ready to wrap it up was um, th- I, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but this is Bong Bong Joon-ho's first English speaking film. Ah, um, OK. And, and oddly enough, Parasite, which followed this, was a Korean film with subtitles. Mm-hmm. So and that was an even bigger success for him than this one was. So, you know, people are always, oh, you know, you got to put it in English so that, you know, Amer-, you know, and Bong Joon-ho said, you know, one of the things that his, one of his hopes from the success of Parasite is that, you know, audiences, you know, in Europe and in America will start to more fully embrace watching movies where you have to read a little bit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Watch a movie with subtitles where you have to read a little bit and you'll see some different kinds of cinema, some different kinds of filmmaking and different stories uh, being told. He's got um, other films he's done. He did Parasite. He did a film called The Host. He did a film called Agja. With, I think it's pronounced Agja. It's like a monster movie. Uh, and I'm watching another one of his movies now called Memories of a Murder. Mm, okay. Or Memories of Murder, actually. It's very good. It's very good. Is, is, it on, is, is that on streaming at all? Yeah, it's on... Uh, I think it's on Hulu. If you have Hulu, uh, but yeah, it's on there. And Song Kang Ho, who plays Nam, he's in that film. Ah, yeah, he's in okay. that film as well. And clearly, that guy's a star. Yeah, when he's on screen, you're like you're paying attention to what he's doing. I'm following his energy. Same thing in this movie. It's it's kind of like a uh, it's a police uh, uh, murder investigation. That's what the film is about. But when he's on screen, you're watching him. You want to see what he says. You want to see what he does. You want to see how he behaves. So clearly that guy is a star. Um, yeah. Uh, John Hurt. If you include Snowpiercer, John Hurt has been in three dystopian movies. 
He was in 1984. Right. He was in V for Vendetta. Mm-hmm. And now he's in Snowpiercer. Uh, the other thing I was going to ask you, too, was, and as it relates to the idea of uh, uh, genre. Yeah. Uh, do you find yourself to be, and I guess you kind of answered it a little bit in the beginning, to be someone who likes dystopian movies and post-apocalyptic movies? Because oddly enough, Snowpiercer is both. It's post-apocalyptic and it's dystopian at the same time. And, er- and every movie is not that. You know what I mean? No, I got you. I got you. And and it's good that you make that distinction, too, because I think people try to use that interchangeably. And, and it's not. It's not. You know, post-apocalyptic obviously means like, you know, the civilization has changed radically. You know, after this, you know, Gotterdammerung, you know, right. or something like that. Right, right, right. <laughs> I love right. saying that. Yeah. I want to say that. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but, but you have that type of thing. And the dystopian is... It, yes, it's a different type of civilization, but it's not after this uh, cataclysmic event. It's this civilization falling in step to this new order of things. Right. You know, oppression, that is, uh, interference, uh, lack mm-hmm. of lack of control over your own life, following a, a lane. You know, yeah, definitely. That that's that's it, the, yeah. exactly. And the reason why, as I stated at the top of the uh, episode, Mm -hmm. is because in those two scenarios, there is always an underdog. Seemingly, there's always an underdog in this story. I mean, you think about other dystopian um, um, fiction like, you know, Fahrenheit 451, um, you know, other things like that. You know, you have this one person, you know, 1984. You know, it's always this one character that's trying to fight back against this dystopia, you know, and oftentimes it's hopeless because whatever this new order is, is greater. This oppression is greater than this one man. But all sometimes all it takes is one person to start this revolt, you know, and we kind of see that inside of Snowpiercer as well. You know what I'm saying? It takes one person to stand up and everyone galvanizes behind that one person to say, no, I think we can do this. I think we can actually turn this thing around. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Even if it may be doomed, but you still got to try anyway. And for me, that's the thing that I love about um, dystopian fiction. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, when it comes to like post-apocalyptic fiction, it's the thing of like, okay, well, how radically has this world changed? You know, what are people doing to survive? You know, because as we said, life will always make a way. So even in these circumstances, how are people surviving? And it's just interesting to see what people will do. You know what I'm saying? Even if it's in a fictional sense. So I think those two things, you know, between those two fictions is what attracts me to those two genres. You know what I'm saying? And, and I want to say one more thing. One more thing. Go ahead. They say in in the movie, the tale, they have to eat this just substance that they call protein blocks, quote unquote. Right. And it's just this gelatinous <laughs> brown substance just almost like just gold bricks you know what i'm saying and (laughs) they get up to the section where they find out how it's made and at first i had to double take like uh, bugs cockroaches what what the hell what the fuck (laughs) it was like (laughs) it was almost like like solid green oh 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 protein it's roaches it's roaches (laughs) (laughs) it's roaches Yes. Like, ah, ah, nasty. <laughs> but yeah, I, <laughs> exactly. I was like, I don't want to see no, <laughs> I don't want to see no chocolate. I don't want to see Doug Brown for the rest of the day. I'm good. I was like, and then it had some hopping up to the, hopping up in yeah. the frame. Chocolate, I went, yeah. ah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, and he, oh. he, Curtis was like, huh? Yes. And then he, tur- he turned to the painter. He said, you can't draw this. You can, you cannot draw this. <laughs> <laughs> the artist was like, "Yeah, yeah, I agree. No problem. I'm cool." <laughs> yeah, I I agree, man. And uh, you know, and I'm I'm with you. Where I'm not a person who generally likes anything in a genre, uh, except maybe crime fiction. I tend to like 
I'll give any kind of crime fiction a shot. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think for, for some other genres, like I won't give any action movie a shot, but mm-hmm. if it's a dystopian movie or if it's a, uh, a post-apocalyptic film, I'll kind of give them all a shot, you know, just to see if they're any good. And obviously, like, early post-apocalyptic would be something like Road Warrior mm. uh, or A Boy and His Dog. I don't know if you ever saw that with Don Johnson. I've heard of it, never seen it all the way through. Yeah, yeah, those would be examples of that. And then dystopians would, dystopian would be like 1984, uh, Dark City, V for, uh, v for Vendetta, um, you know, there, there are, you know, many others, uh, that, that we could probably come up with. And, and we kind of touched on a little bit of that when we talked about cyberpunk as a, uh, mm-hmm. as a genre, because it tends to marry itself with dystopia, you know? Um, absolutely. Yeah. You know, they tend to be, you know, sister and brother, but, um, I highly recommend checking out Snowpiercer, especially if you're a fan of Parasite. Um, it's a very different movie from Parasite. You know, Parasite is kind of like a family drama about class and privilege and whatnot. This is that, but, you know, with, you know, a much more high concept kind of a thing going on. But uh, I really enjoyed it. And I I do think I will end by saying this, man. All right. I enjoyed Chris Evans. I think he did a good job, but he was not the person for the for the role. You don't think so? No, he was not the person for the role. I think there are many, many other people that could have given us more. And, and, and part of it, I think, is just uh-huh. Chris Evans is just too nice looking. He looks nice. He doesn't look like desperate. Like, you know what I mean? Like he can't either he either he either I'm not able to get it from him or he's not giving it to me. I don't think he's giving it to me from his face. And that's that's something that I find with certain actors like like when I saw uh, Tom Hanks in uh, The Road to Perdition. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like Tom Hanks as a hit man. <laughs> you are buying it, man. The bosom buddy <laughs> as a hit man. <laughs> bosom buddy. <laughs> oh, boy. I just I just never bought it. And if it were a lower budgeted movie and had come out in like the 80s or the 90s. Tom Berenger would have killed that. Somebody like him, mm. he would have killed that. You know, there are there are a ton of character actors, you know, from back in the day that would have killed that. But I just was like, but I mean, again, you know, you got Captain America in your movie. Now they can spend $40 million on Snowpiercer and they could probably get all these other actors to sign on, you know, because, you know, they can meet their, you know, their quote or whatever. So. Well, I would also say with Chris Evans, though, you know, could it be possible that in a way, you know, having another, you know, actor would almost not 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 undermine that role, but kind of just make it like they're almost too strong in that role. Like you almost needed almost almost a cipher. And that's kind of what Chris Evans was. He was he was famous, but not super famous where you get like a Academy Award winner in that role. Right. You know, and it, and it kind of changes the dynamic just a bit, just a bit. You know, he's enough of a name to where we can work with him, but he's not going to give you that incredible dramatic performance, which, you know, you would maybe want, you know, what you were wanting from that. You know what I'm saying? I, I think you're right. I think his his station as an actor at the time was good. Like if they'd cast Brad Pitt or you know, right. somebody like that, you'd be like, "Oh my God!" You know, I mean, he just brings a lot of a lot of baggage and a lot of other things. So, like you're saying, finding somebody who's kind of mid tier who stars on the rise is good because he does bring that Marvel movie, hopefully, you know, that audience to this film, and so they they probably were able to kind of get a probably get more money, you know, behind the movie because they had Captain America in the part, but at the same time. He was totally, uh, he had no, no real career. No, he didn't have a big career prior to Captain America. Like you said, Captain America is the pivotal point from him. He may never, he may never ascend past that. Right. You know what I mean? That might be, that might be it, you know, but I think you're right. I think, you know, if you'd gotten someone who was, you know, like, and the other thing I guess too is, 
him saying I'm not a leader. Come on, man. <laughs> I'm not a leader, Edgar. You're not. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> I half expected him to say, oh, I could do this all day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was waiting. On, I was <laughs> Look, when he was when he was running, chasing Mason down. On the left. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on the left. On the left. Uh-huh. Oh, man. That concludes this episode of Sidebar Forever, hosted by Dwight Clark, Swain Hunt, and Adrian Johnson. You can find us online at sidebarforever.com. Any emails or questions can be directed to us at sidebarforever at gmail.com. And also, subscribe to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Sidebar Forever is copyright 2020. Dwight Clark, Swain Hunt, and Adrian Johnson.